Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Thomas Merton's The Seven-Story Mountain. Volume 12, Part 4. The months passed quickly, but not quickly enough for me. Already it was June 1940, but the two months that remained until the date in August when the doors of the novitiate would open to receive 30 or 40 new postulates seemed infinitely far away. I did not stay long in New York when I came back from Cuba. I was there only a few days, in which I went to the monastery on 31st Street and learned from Father Edmund that my application for admission had been accepted and that some of the necessary papers had arrived. It was a very good thing that this was so, because postulates entering a religious order need documents from every diocese where they have lived for a morally continuous year since their 14th year as well as their birth certificate and a lot of other things as well. But this was precisely the time when the German armies were pouring into France. At that moment, when I stepped off the boat in New York, they had made their first break through the French lines, and it had at last become obvious that the impregnable defense of the Maginot line was a myth. Indeed, it was only a matter of a few days before the fierce armored divisions of the Nazis, following in the path broken out before them by the Luftwaffe, pierced the demoralized French army and embraced the betrayed nation in arms of steel. They had Paris within a fortnight, and then they were at Lourdes, and finally the papers were full of blurred wire photos of the dumb, isolated dining car in the park at Compignan, where Hitler made the French eat the document on which the 1918 armistice had been written. So, too, if my father and mother's marriage certificate from St. Anne's in Soho, London, had not come in that year, it might never have come at all. I don't know if the parish records of St. Anne's survived the Blitzkrieg that was let loose over the heads of the huge, dark city full of sins and miseries, in whose fogs I had once walked with such wise complacency. Everything seemed clear. A month would go by, and then another, and soon I would be walking with my suitcase up some drab, unimaginable street in Patterson, New Jersey, to a small brick monastery, which I could not very well envisage. But the drabness of the city would be left behind at the door, and I knew, although I had no special illusions about St. Anthony's novitiate, either that inside I would find peace, and I would begin my retreat, and after a month or so I would put on the brown robe and the white cord of a friar, and I would be walking in sandals with a shaved head in silence to a not-too-beautiful chapel. But anyway, there I would have God and possess him and belong to him. Meanwhile, I would go upstate. The best thing I could think of was to join Lax and Rice and Gertie and Gibney and the red-headed southerner, Jim Knight, who were all living at the cottage on the hill over Olean. But on the way, I went through Ithaca to see my brother at Cornell. Perhaps this was the last time I would see John Paul before I entered the novitiate. I couldn't tell. This was the year he was supposed to graduate from Cornell, but it turned out that things had gone wrong, and he was not graduating after all. The bored, lost, perplexed expression that wrinkled his forehead, the restlessness of his walk, and the joyless noisiness of his laughter told me all I needed to know about my brother's college career. I recognized all the tokens of the spiritual emptiness that had dogged my own steps from Cambridge to Columbia. He had a big, second-hand Buick in which he drove up and down all day under the heavy-hanging branches of the campus trees. 
His life was a constant reckless peregrination back and forth between the college and the town in the valley below it, from his classes to Willard Strait Hall to sit on the terrace with the co-eds and drink sodas in the sun and look at the vast luminous landscape as bright and highly colored as a plate in the National Geographic magazine. He wandered from the university library to his rooms in the town and thence to the movies and thence to all those holes in the wall whose names I have forgotten or never knew where Cornell students sit around tables in a dull amber semi-darkness and fill the air with their noise and the smoke of their cigarettes and the din of their appalling wit. I only stayed with him in Ithaca a couple of days, and when I got up in the morning to go to Mass and Communion, he came down and knelt with me and heard Mass and watched me go to Communion. He told me he had been talking to the chaplain of the Catholic students, but I could not make out whether his real attraction was the faith or the fact that the chaplain was interested in flying. And John Paul himself, as it turned out, was going down most days to the Ithaca airport and learning to fly a plane. After we had had breakfast, he went back to the campus to take an examination in some such subject as Oriental history or Russian literature, and I got on a bus that would take me to Elmira, where I would get on the train to Olean. The cottage was crowded, and that meant there were far more dirty dishes piling up in the kitchen after those perilous meals of fried suspicious meats. But everybody was busy with something, and the woods were quiet, and the sun was as bright as ever on the wide, airy landscape of rolling mountains before our faces. Presently, Seymour came from New York with Helen, his wife, and Peggy Wells came to the cottage, and later came Nancy Flagg, who went to Smith, and for whom Lax had written a poem in The New Yorker. Gibney and Seymour climbed into the tops of 30-foot trees and built a platform there about 10 feet long between the trees, reached by a ladder up the side of one of the trees. It was so high that Lax would not even climb it. Meanwhile, in the early mornings outside the room where the girls lived, you could see Peggy Wells sitting and reading one of those fancy editions of the Bible as literature out loud to herself. And when Nancy Flagg was there, she sat in the same sun and combed her long hair, which was a marvelous red gold. And I hope she never cut it short, for it gave glory to God. And on those days... I think Peggy Wells read the Bible out loud to Nancy Flagg. I don't know. Later, Peggy Wells walked through the woods by herself, puzzling over Aristotle's categories. Rice and Knight and Gertie sat apart, mostly in or around the garage, typing or discussing novels or commercial short stories, and Lax grew his beard and thought, and sometimes put down on paper thoughts for a story or talked with Nancy Flagg. For my own part, I found a good place where I could sit on a rail of the fence along the stony driveway and look out at the far hills and say the rosary. It was a quiet, sunny place, and the others did not come by that way much, and you could not hear the sounds of the house. This was where I was happiest in those weeks in June. It was too far from town to go down to communion every morning. I had to hitchhike down, and that was one reason why I asked one of my friends, Father Joseph, a friar who had come to St. Bonaventure's from New York to teach summer school, if I could not come down there for a couple of weeks. Seeing that I was going to enter the order in August, it was not hard to persuade the guardian to let me come down and stay in the big dilapidated room in the gymnasium that was occupied by three or four poor students and seminarians who had odd jobs around the place as telephone operators and garage hands for the summer. 
At that time, all the clerics from different houses of study in the province came to St. Bonaventure's for the summer. And I suppose they're doing it again now that the war is over. So in those weeks, I really began to enter into Franciscan life and get some taste of it as it is led in this country and to know some of its pleasant and cheerful and easygoing informality. Summer school had not yet started, and the clerics had plenty of time to sit around on the steps of the library and gymnasium and tell me stories about how it had been with them in the novitiate. I began to get a picture of life that was, in their estimation, somewhat severe, but was full of its own lighter moments. St. Anthony's Monastery, they said, was the hottest place they had ever seen in the summertime, and the chapel was stuffy and was filled with a sickening smell of wax from all the burning candles. Then there was a certain amount of work to be done. You had to scrub floors and wash dishes and work in the garden. But then you got some time to yourself, and there was recreation, too. I got dark hints of humiliations that were to be expected here and there, but they all agreed that the novice master was a good sort of fellow and they liked him. They told me I would, too. The general impression I got was that all the unpleasantness and hardship was crowded into the year of the canonical novitiate, and that after that, things opened out and became easy and pleasant as they were now. And certainly these clerics, as I saw them, were leading a life that could not by any stretch of the imagination be called hard. Here they were, living at this college, among these beautiful green hills, surrounded by woods and fields, in a corner of America where the summer is never hot, and which they would leave long before the cold weather came. They had whole mornings and afternoons to read or study, and there were hours in which they could play baseball or tennis or go for walks in the woods and even go to town, walking two by two solemnly in black suits and Roman collars. They told me elaborate stories of the ways there were of getting around even the easy regulations that prohibited too much familiarity with seculars. And, of course, the good Catholic families in the town were falling over themselves in their anxiety to invite the young Franciscans to come and sit in their parlors and be made much of with cookies and soft drinks. For my part, I was already deciding in my mind that I would make use of all these opportunities to get away and read and pray and do some writing when I was in my brown robe and wearing those same sandals. Meanwhile, I got up when the clerics did. I suppose it was not much earlier than six in the morning, and went to Mass with them and received communion with them, and then went to breakfast with the farmhands, where a little nun in a white and blue habit brought us cornflakes and fried eggs for the cooking was done by some sisters of one of those innumerable little Franciscan congregations. After breakfast, I would walk over to the library, breathing the cold morning air as the dew melted on the lawns. Father Arrhenius gave me the key to the philosophy seminar room, and there I could spend the morning all alone reading St. Thomas at my leisure, with a big, plain wooden crucifix at the end of the room for me to look at when I raised my eyes from the book. I don't think I had ever been so happy in my life as I was now in that silent library, turning over the pages of the first part of the Summa Theologica, and here and there making notes on the goodness, the all-presence, the wisdom, the power, and the love of God. In the afternoons I would walk in the woods or along the Allegheny River that flowed among the trees, skirting the bottom of the wide pastures. Turning over the pages of Butler's Lives of the Saints, I had looked for some name to take in religion. Indeed, that was a problem, over which I had wasted an undue amount of time. The province was a big one, and there were so many friars in it that they had run out of all the names, and you could not take a name that was already taken by someone else. I knew in advance that I could not be John Baptist, 
or an Augustine or Jerome or Gregory. I would have to find some outlandish name like Fafnudius, which was Father Arrhenius's suggestion. Finally, I came across a Franciscan called John Spaniard, and I thought that would be fine. I considered the possibility of myself running around in a brown robe and sandals and imagined I heard the novice master saying, Freighter John Spaniard, go over there and scrub that floor! Or else he would put his head out of his rooms and say to one of the other novices, Go and get Freighter John Spaniard and bring him here! And then I would come humbly along the corridor in my sandals, or rather our sandals, with my eyes down with the rapid but decorous gait of a young friar who knew his business. Freighter John Spaniard. It made a pleasant picture. When I went back to the cottage on the hill and timidly admitted that I thought I might take the name of Freighter John Spaniard, Seymour at least thought it was a good choice. Seymour had a weakness for anything that seemed to have some sort of dash about it, and maybe in the back of his mind he was thinking of Torquemada and the Inquisition. Although I don't think the John Spaniard in question had much to do with that, but I have forgotten where the saint actually did belong in history. All this fuss about choosing a fancy name may seem like nothing but harmless foolishness, and I suppose that's true, but nevertheless I now realize that it was a sign of a profound and radical defect in the vocation which so filled my heart and occupied my imagination in those summer days of 1940. It is true that I was called to the cloister. That has been made abundantly clear, but the dispositions with which I was now preparing to enter the Franciscan novitiate were much more imperfect than I was able to realize. In choosing the Franciscans, I had followed what was apparently a perfectly legitimate attraction, an attraction which might very well have been a sign of God's will, even though it was not quite as supernatural as I thought. I had chosen the order because I thought I would be able to keep its rule without difficulty, and because I was attracted by the life of teaching and writing which it would offer me and much more by the surroundings in which I saw I would probably live. God very often accepts dispositions that are no better than these, and even some that are far worse, and turns them into a true vocation in his own time. But with me it was not to be so. I had to be led by a way that I could not understand, and I had to follow a path that was beyond my own choosing. God did not want anything of my natural tastes and fancies and selections, until they had been more completely divorced from their old track, their old habits, and directed to himself by his own working. My natural choice, my own taste in selecting a mode of life, was altogether untrustworthy, and already my selfishness was asserting itself and claiming this whole vocation for itself, by investing the future with all kinds of natural pleasures and satisfactions which would fortify and defend my ego against the troubles and worries of life in the world. Besides, I was depending almost entirely on my own powers and my own virtues, as if I had any, to become a good religious and to live up to my obligations in the monastery. God does not want that. He does not ask us to leave the world as a favor to himself. God calls men, not only religious but all Christians, to be the salt of the earth. But the savor of the salt, says St. Augustine, is a supernatural life, and we lose our savor if... Ceasing to rely on God alone, we are guided in our actions by the mere desire of temporal goods or the fear of their loss. Quote, Be ye solicitous, therefore, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewith shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the heathens seek. For your Father knoweth that you need all these things. And he said to all, 
If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, for he that shall lose his life for my sake shall save it. Unquote. No matter what religious order a man enters, whether its rule be easy or strict in itself does not matter much. If his vocation is to be really fruitful, it must cost him something, and must be a real sacrifice. It must be a cross, a true renunciation of natural goods, even of the highest natural goods. Since I was the person that I happened to be, and since I was so strongly attached to material goods, and so immersed in my own self, and so far from God, and so independent of him, and so dependent on myself and my own imaginary powers, it was necessary that I should not enter a monastery feeling the way I did about the Franciscans. The truth of the matter is simply this. Becoming a Franciscan, especially at that precise moment of history, meant absolutely no sacrifice at all, as far as I was concerned. Even the renunciation of legitimate pleasures of the flesh did not cost me as much as it might seem. I had suffered so much tribulation and unrest on their account that I rejoiced at the prospect of peace and a life protected from the heat and anguish of passion by the vow of chastity. So even this was a boon rather than a matter of pain, all the more so because I imagined in my stupid inexperience that the fight against concupience had already been won, and that my soul was free, and that I had little or nothing to worry about any more. No, all I would have to do was enter the novitiate and undergo one year of inconveniences so slight that they would hardly be noticeable, and after that, everything would be full of fine and easy delights. Plenty of freedom, plenty of time to read and study and meditate, and ample liberty to follow my own tastes and desires in all things of the mind and spirit. Indeed, I was entering upon a life of the highest possible natural pleasures, for even prayer in a certain sense can be a natural pleasure. Above all, it must be remembered that the world was at war, and even now, at the cottage, we sat around the fireplace at night, and talked about the selective service law that would soon be passed in Washington, wondering how it would be and what we should do about it. For Lax and Gibney, this law involved a complicated problem of conscience. They were even asking themselves whether the war was licit at all, and if so, whether they could be justified in entering it as combatants. For my own part, no problems even arose, since I would be in a monastery and the question would be settled automatically. I think it is very evident that such a vocation demanded more of a trial. God was not going to let me walk out of the miseries of the world into a refuge of my own choosing. He had another way prepared for me. He had several questions he wanted to ask me about this vocation of mine, questions which I would not be able to answer. Then, when I failed to answer them, he would give me the answers, and I would find the problem solved. It was a strange thing. I did not take it as a warning. But one night I was reading the ninth chapter of the book of Job, and was amazed and stunned by a series of lines which I could not forget. And Job answered and said, Indeed, I know that it is so, and that man cannot be justified compared with God. If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him, one for a thousand. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who hath resisted him and hath had peace? Who shaketh the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble? Who commandeth the sun, and it riseth not, and shutteth up the stars, as if it were under a seal? It was a cool summer evening. I was sitting in the driveway outside the wide-open garage, which had become a general dormitory since we had no car to put in there. 
Bryce and Lax and Seymour and I had all brought our beds out there to sleep in the air. With the book in my lap, I looked down at the lights of the cars crawling up the road from the valley. I looked at the dark outline of the wooded hills and at the stars that were coming out in the eastern sky. The words of the Vulgate text rang and echoed in my heart. Qui facit Arcturum et Oriana. Who maketh Arcturus and Orion and Hyades and the inner parts of the south? There was something deep and disturbing in the lines. I thought they only moved me as poetry, and yet I also felt, obscurely enough, that there was something personal about them. God often talks to us directly in Scripture. That is, he plants the words full of actual graces as we read them. And sudden, undiscovered meanings are sown in our hearts if we attend to them reading with minds that are at prayer. I did not yet have the art of reading that way. But nevertheless, these words had a dark fire in them with which I began to feel myself burned and seared. If he come to me, I shall not see him. If he depart, I shall not understand. If he examine me on a sudden, who shall answer him? Or who can say, Why dost thou so? There was something in the words that seemed to threaten all the peace that I had been tasting for months past, a kind of forewarning of an accusation that would unveil forgotten realities. I had fallen asleep in my sweet security. I was living as if God only existed to do me temporal favors. God whose wrath no man can resist, and under whom they stoop that bear up the world. What am I then, that I should answer him and have words with him? And if he should hear me, then when I call, I should not believe that he had heard my voice. For he shall crush me in a whirlwind, and multiply my wounds even without cause. Even without cause. And my uneasy spirit was already beginning to defend itself against this unfair God who could not be unjust, could not be unfair. If I would justify myself, my own mouth shall condemn me. If I should show myself innocent, he shall prove me wicked and multiply my wounds even without cause. I closed the book. The words struck deep. They were more than I would ever be able to understand. But the impression they made should have been a kind of warning that I was about to find out something about their meaning. And the blow fell suddenly. I was within a few weeks of entering the novitiate. Already I was receiving those last-minute letters from the novice master with the printed lists of things I was expected to bring with me to the monastery. There were few enough. The only perplexing item on the list was one umbrella. The list made me happy. I read it over and over. I began to feel the same pleasant excitement that used to glow in the pit of my stomach when I was about to start out for camp in the summer or go to a new school. Then God asked me a question. He asked me a question about my vocation. Rather, God did not have to ask me any questions. He knew all that. He needed to know about my vocation. He allowed the devil, as I think, to ask me some questions. Not in order that the devil should get any information, but in order that I might learn a thing or two. There's a certain kind of humility in hell, which is one of the worst things in hell, which is infinitely far from the humility of the saints, which is peace. The false humility of hell is an unending, burning shame at the inescapable stigma of our sins. The sins of the damned are felt by them as vesture of intolerable insults from which they cannot escape. Nessus shirts that burn them up forever 
and which they can never throw off. The anguish of this self-knowledge is inescapable even on earth, as long as there is any self-love left in us, because it is pride that feels the burning of that shame. Only when all pride, all self-love, have been consumed in our souls by the love of God are we delivered from the thing which is the subject of those torments. It is only when we have lost all love of ourselves for our own sakes that our past sins cease to give us any cause for suffering or for anguish of shame. For the saints, when they remember their sins, do not remember the sins, but the mercy of God. And therefore, even past evil is turned by them into a present cause of joy and serves to glorify God. It is the proud that have to be burned and devoured by the horrible humility of hell. But as long as we are in this life, even that burning anguish can be turned into a grace and should be a cause of joy. But anyway, one day I woke up to find out that the peace I had known for six months or more had suddenly gone. The Eden I had been living in had vanished. I was outside the wall. I did not know what flaming swords barred my way to the gate whose rediscovery had become impossible. I was once more out of the cold and naked and alone, and then everything began to fall apart, especially my vocation to the monastery. Not that it occurred to me to doubt my desire to become a Franciscan, to enter the cloister, to become a priest. That desire was stronger than ever now that I was cast out into the darkness of this cold solitude. It was practically the only thing I had left, the only thing to cover me and keep me warm. And yet it was small comfort, because the very presence of the desire tortured me by contrast with the sudden hopelessness that had come storming up out of the hidden depths of my heart. My desire to enter the cloister was small comfort indeed, for I had suddenly been faced with the agonizing doubt, the unanswerable question, do I really have that vocation? I suddenly remembered who I was, who I had been. I was astonished. Since last September, I seemed to have forgotten that I had ever sinned. And now I suddenly realized that none of the men to whom I had talked about my vocation, neither Dan Walsh nor Father Edmund, knew who I really was. They knew nothing about my past. They did not know how I had lived before I entered the church. They had simply accepted me because I was superficially presentable, I had a fairly open sort of face and seemed to be sincere and to have an ordinary amount of sense and goodwill. Surely that was not enough. Now the terrible problem faced me. I have to go and let Father Edmund know about all this. Perhaps it will make a big difference. After all, it is not enough merely to desire to enter the monastery. An attraction to the cloister is not even the most important element in a religious vocation. You have to have the right moral and physical and intellectual aptitudes. And you have to be accepted, and accepted on certain terms, certain grounds. When I looked at myself in the light of this doubt, it began to appear utterly impossible that anyone in his right mind could consider me fit material for the priesthood. I immediately packed my bag and started out for New York. It seemed a long, long journey as the train crawled along the green valleys. As we are coming down the Delaware toward Calicoon, where the Franciscans had their minor seminary, the sky had clouded over. We were slowing down, and the first houses of the village were beginning to file past on the road beside the track. A boy who had been swimming in the river came running up a path 
through the long grass from the face of the thunderstorm that was just about to break. His mother was calling him from the porch of one of the houses. I became vaguely aware of my own homelessness. When we had gone around the bend, I could see the stone tower of the seminary on the hilltop among the trees. And I thought, I will never live in you. It is finished. I got into New York that evening and called up Father Edmund, but he was too busy to see me. So I went out to the house at Douglaston. When are you going to the novitiate? My aunt asked me. Maybe I'm not going, I said. They did not ask me any questions. I went to communion and prayed earnestly that God's will should be done. And it was. But I was far from being able to understand it then. Father Edmund listened to what I had to say. I told him about my past and all the troubles I'd had, and he was very friendly and very kind. But if I had any hope that he would wave all my doubts aside with a smile, I was soon disappointed, and he said, Well, Tom, listen, suppose you let me think it over and pray a bit, and come back in a couple of days, all right? In a couple of days? Come back tomorrow. So I waited for another day. My mind was full of anguish and restlessness, and I prayed, My God, please take me into the monastery. But anyway, whatever you want, your will be done. Of course, I understand the whole business now. My own mind was full of strange, exaggerated ideas. I was in a kind of nightmare. I could not see anything straight. But Father Edmund saw clearly enough for all that. He saw that I was only a recent convert, not yet two years in the church, he saw that I had had an unsettled life and that my vocation was by no means sure and that I was upset with doubts and misgivings. The novitiate was full anyway, and when a novitiate is crammed with postulants year after year, it is time for somebody to reflect about the quality of the vocations that are coming in. When there is such a crowd, you have to be careful that a few who are less desirable do not float in on that tide with the rest. So the next day he told me kindly enough that I ought to write to the provincial and tell him that I had reconsidered my application. There was nothing I could say. I could only hang my head and look about me at the ruins of my vocation. I asked a few faint-hearted questions trying to feel my way and found out if my case was hopeless. Naturally, Father would not commit himself or his order to anything, and I could not even get what might seem to be a vague promise for the future. There seemed to me to be no question that I was now excluded from the priesthood forever. I promised I would write at once and that I would proclaim my undying loyalty to the friar's minor in doing so. Do that, Father said. The provincial will be pleased. When I walked down the steps of the monastery, I was so dazed I didn't know what to do. All I could think of was to go over across 7th Avenue to the Church of the Capuchins next to the station. I went inside the church and knelt in the back, and seeing there was a priest hearing confessions, I presently got up and took my place in the short line that led to his confessional. I knelt in the darkness until the slide snapped back with a bang, and I saw a thin bearded priest who looked something like James Joyce. All the Capuchins in this country have that kind of beard. The priest was in no mood to stand for any nonsense, and I myself was confused and miserable and couldn't explain myself properly and so he got my story all mixed up. Evidently, he decided that I was only complaining and trying to get around the decision that had been made by some religious order that had fired me out of their novitiate, probably for some good reason. 
The whole thing was so hopeless that finally, in spite of myself, I began to choke and sob and couldn't talk anymore. So the priest, probably judging that I was some emotional and unstable and stupid character, began to tell me in strong terms that I certainly did not belong in any monastery, still less the priesthood, and in fact gave me to understand that I was simply wasting his time and insulting the sacrament of penance by indulging myself in his confessional. When I came out of that ordeal, I was completely broken in pieces. I could not keep back tears which ran down between the fingers of the hands in which I concealed my face. So I prayed before the tabernacle and the big stone crucified Christ above the altar. The only thing I knew, besides my own tremendous misery, was that I must no longer consider that I had a vocation to the cloister.